Welcome back to the Current State Podcast. This is my podcast where I try and uncover the truth about the music and the music industry. What's going on? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it fucked? Or is it in rude health? So if you're new to this podcast, I hope you found episodes... One, Mr. Scruff, two, Jean-Claude from If Music, and three, Fred Deakin, that existed before it became a podcast. And if this is your first outing, then uh, you're very welcome along. This time we're talking to Alex and Dave, who run Fat Cat Records. Fat Cat used to be a record shop, first in Crawley, and then in Covent Garden in London, and they enjoyed many successes. But now they're strictly a record label with a very eclectic roster of artists. quite a challenge this one mainly because it's the first time I've had to talk to two people at the same time and then edit that into something listenable and in a reasonable time frame but to also try and get the balance between both their personalities and I guess the sides of the business that they can talk about but very entertaining it was too I could have talked to them for a lot lot longer but we kind of had to cut it short because we all had school runs and things to do but maybe we'll revisit another time to kind of catch up on a few more things but for now for now I'd like to introduce you to Alex Knight and Dave Cawley of Fat Cat Records I'm Dave Cawley and I'm from Fat Cat Records and I'm Alex Knight from Fat Cat Records so usually with my podcasts the first question is when they became aware of music my my first uh, awareness i've got i've got older siblings and um and my parents were also um uh, well, their record collection was my first introduction to music i think and um a, a typical sunday it was always on a sunday night um that there would be no tv and you'd have a bath and air wash for school in the morning but sunday night was when my old man would be doing the ironing and uh, the ironing got done once a week and ironing time also meant he put records on so that was my my first introduction to, to music was was i mean to sit there having had my hair washed <laughs> watching my old man with the ironing board out dinner sort of thing really it was like sunday evening my old man recording the chart show on like a tape cassette 
for the car that he was going to play or something like that. I remember, obviously, there was music going on, you know, in and around, but that was the first time that I took an active interest of what he was taping and what he wanted to listen to from the chart show that was on a Sunday evening, I seem to remember. I'm always interested to know when a casual interest in music becomes something more, becomes a passion. It wasn't until I got to a secondary school that my real love of music, which was black music, you know, that's where I really found my thing. And I think that was because, I don't know, from the skinhead thing that was going on, the madness and the skinhead thing got into the two-tone and the reggae and the rest of it, and then the whole kind of break dancing thing happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I couldn't break dance. So my thing was the music. <laughs> and it was going back and recording stuff, Mike Allen or whoever off the radio and having these cassettes, you know, and then getting really, really heavily into it then. That was when I kind of, the real obsession kicked in at that kind of age. Well, I, well I, had a, I, had a, I had a drum kit from the age of, well, a makeshift, we made, we made a drum kit when I was, um, in, in primary school, my granddad kind of welded some bits of metal together and, um, and uh, I borrowed some of these kind of drums that the music teacher had and kind of built this frame around them and, and kind of created this drum kit. Um, and then when I was maybe 10 or 11, I actually got a real drum kit, my first real drum kit. And my ear was pricked. Every time I heard something on the radio, I'd be listening to the rhythm, to the drums, to the how it sounds. And that's how... Um, I suppose that led me into kind of the bands that I was listening to, whether it be the Sex Pistols or the, I used to love listening to the jam because uh, the, the drumming was fan, you know, fantastic. And so I'd be sitting there with headphones on trying to play along to you know, jam albums and stuff. And, and so I think my, my real love for music was, was through playing the drums initially and which led me into kind of, you know, all those bands and especially drumming, you know, the, the, those bands who had fantastic drummers. That was what, you know, that's what I wanted to be when I was, 12, 13, 14. So this time's the first time I've had a conversation between me and two people. And so the obvious question was, is sort of how did their paths cross? What was that? Was there a kind of a lightning bolt event that joined them together on a journey that was going to carry them through possibly the rest of their lives together? Well, we had we did a, we did a couple of parties, didn't we? We, yeah. we? we did a couple of parties first, 
and um, the first one was an absolute disaster and um, and the second one wasn't the second one was actually really good fun and quite successful we we'd been hanging out a bit by then anyway and yeah. and sharing records and and have you got this and have you heard that and you know just when when you're into music like that you kind of you gravitate towards people that have got similar tastes and and are doing similar things and and, it, and there came a moment where you know when you've come home with having spent 80 90 quid on on vinyl and and maybe five five to ten quids worth of it it was 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 a good investment the other 60 quid you spent you wish you hadn't <coughs> you kind of like oh, I, I didn't hear that bit and i never heard that bit of the record and my goodness he certainly didn't play that um might be called balearic now i suppose you'll name them records now <laughs> classified as balearic i don't know, I don't know but we felt you we felt being properly ripped off at the time and, and i think some of the records that we knew were out there you couldn't get you couldn't find these records these records that our friends had from chicago and these records that that, that were from detroit that you you knew about you had cassettes of them you had, you had djs you know cassettes of um djs in detroit spinning this stuff on the radio you knew these records were there but but no one really championed it and no one really sold it and if you did find a copy it was always that the record shop had one copy didn't even know what it was weren't going to play it to anyone because it didn't sound like everything else and you find it in the shop oh, got a copy brilliant I found it in that box over there you know but because we knew that was that was that stuff was around I think we were you know and I was doing engineering at the time I think we were 18 or something 18 years old I was doing engineering I wasn't and I'd gone from being on the tools to sitting in an office all day and I hadn't really got the I mean, I know I do that now, but at the time it was—it wasn't something I wanted to be doing. I didn't want to be sitting in an office, and um, and me, you, and, other, and one other guy, Andy, who was a friend of mine. Um, we, we all got together one day and just said, "Listen, you know, who'd be up for opening a shop? I can probably raise X amount of money. Can you raise any money?" And I think we all raised. It, and looking back, it was a tiny sum of money, really. It wasn't much. But at all. With, with with that <laughs> sum, I think it was three thousand pound between the three of us, and with that three thousand pound. I gave up my job and we opened our first store and stocked it. So it was, um, you know, those are the days. Everyone mucked in, he'll, he'll, he'll get the place kitted out. And then we went out and um, ground distribution, Moe's distribution, and, and just sat in their, in their warehouses going through boxes, just trying to find stuff that, that, that we thought, or kind of knew that, that our little mob in Crawley would be into. And it, and, it, and it worked, you know, we, we, we managed to, everything we bought in that first yeah, day of opening, we sold it all, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, and we're like, we run out of records on the first day, so we're like, that's brilliant, yeah. let's go and buy some more. So on the Monday, we went and bought some more and uh, restocked. So, and it, it was really good, and, and, it, and it kind of, we continued on that basis for a number of years. We ended up from, from one premises in Crawley to a different one, and then uh, a year later, we opened up in, in Covent Garden in London. So when we moved to London, we also, Lee went out to the States and he went to Chicago and I think he went to New York and Detroit. And what he did is he went to Barney's in Chicago, which was the big kind of electronic dance music distributor at the time. And we left the new releases alone because we could get all the new releases. And what he did is he kind of went up the ladders and pulled the boxes down that were sitting up on the top shelves. 
and in those boxes lo and behold were all these records that we'd only ever heard about and um, you know we're kind of really sought after like the uh, you know these kind of um, super rare 12 inches from Chicago and there were hundreds of them they weren't just one or two copies there were boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of this stuff and the guys at Barney's in Chicago couldn't believe that these young kids had flown over from from London and uh, were, weren't interested in all the new stuff that they were trying to sell them but they were clearing all the space in their warehouse for them by taking boxes and boxes and boxes of these records that hadn't been out of shift in a number of years and our opening week we had boxes and boxes and boxes of these records in our coal we had a, like a coal cellar bit didn't we like pitch black damp coal cellar full up with boxes of all these kind of rare records and we had a tiny little shop and we just put one of each out on the on the rails at the top and, and um and we opened up and within sort of a week word got out that there's this new shop open and they have got records coming out of their ears that they've written us so all these record collectors were suddenly in our shop within that first week you know saying oh, i need that copy that one there so you can have that one how much is that that's five pounds as soon as you put it down and give it to him we got another one out and put it up oh you've got another one yeah i've got loads <laughs> we had loads and loads of them so um, it was really interesting and and uh, and that was kind of the catalyst and and you know, from that moment on, we, we were just a busy shop week in, week out for the next seven years. I also think it was down to our attitude was really different to everyone else in London. Well, I won't say it didn't, I can't make that general Not statement. Everyone. It wasn't our, my experience, you know. Strike that, strike that from the interview. <clears throat> no, I don't mean it in that way. But, you know, we wanted to make it sure that the customer always came first, you know, that the customer always would know more than you behind the counter because typically you walk into a record shop and the guy behind the counter knows everything, which is just nonsense. You know, and if you let the person share their information, the people that stand on the other side of the counter are a world of information and will let you into records that you haven't even heard of. And if you can put your ego to one side and just open up and have that communication about music and the love of music, first of all, you can find out what they want. And then you can hopefully sell them some records. Then you can also find some records out that you can sell in your shop. Yeah, I mean, it's you can order some different ones. And they feel really happy. And then they come back, and every it's a win-win-win situation. Everyone. Uh, the, really the other thing that we would do if you were in the you shop know? and we had a delivery come in, and it was you know all the, all the new stuff would come in. Sometimes you only ever got five copies, or you know if you were in the shop at that time and that delivery came in, we would sell all those copies. We wouldn't be going. Oh, we'll put one aside for so and so, and put another one aside here, and I'll keep two for myself and. It was it was quite um, we were quite open in that respect that if if you if you were in our shop and you were a regular customer and you came in you worked out when the delivery date we would have a delivery every day really wouldn't we mm. but um, and the vans and stuff the like vans that. used to come around and we'd have deliveries every day but if you were there at that time you'd be sold a record it wouldn't be in X Y and Z DJ's box for the weekend because that we we didn't we weren't we we we've been into shops where that policy operated and we never got the records we we wanted you know don't matter how many times you went round you never got them um and it was this kind of them and us situation and our shop wasn't like that if you were there you'd get it you, you know it was there to be sold to whoever's standing at the counter not kind of tucked away in a secret cubby hole out the back
So I was obviously keen to find out why, if the shop was successful, why did it close? And was the plans for the label already in place before they closed the shop? We couldn't As find well. a place in the West End. We needed to be in the West End. We didn't want to move out of the West End. And we got caught out by that and the shop ended up and kind of folded. But we were, we were really lucky because one of our customers, well, we had a couple of customers at the time. One was Bjork, the other one was Derek Burkett. He ran One Little Indian. She was a massive supporter of what was going on musically within the shop. We liked her. She made a lot of musical and creative connections through the shop of the music that she was listening to at the time. And... They were really kind in giving us the opportunity to go and carry on Fat Cat as a full-time label from the hub that's One Little Indian. So we kind of went and set ourselves up there. But I think really early on, we'd kind of already, well, I'd already decided, and I think Alex had as well, that we weren't going to follow the pattern that Fat Cat had been known for, which was, you know, Detroit and Chicago and UK Electronica, that we wanted to do more than that, that we weren't just that because our listening tastes were broader than that. And if you sort of looked on the outskirts of what we were kind of doing, there was other sorts of music, but we didn't do it because we didn't want to, we weren't going to go and try and compete with Rough Trade who were over the road and did a wonderful job at that. Musically, though, we didn't, I didn't want us to be put into a pigeonhole and I wanted us to be free. And I think it was because people would come in and no disrespect to Warp or DJX or whatever, people would come in and just buy it. Rightfully so, because they knew what the next record was going to be, whereas I kind of didn't want that to happen. I kind of wanted people to go, oh my God, you've put out a punk record and I'm electronic. And, uh, you know, it's to, it to reflect the record collections of the people that were working for the label really that's how I kind of felt and particularly vocals as well doing kind of guitars and vocals and bands and that that, that world which was kind of new and exciting because we weren't in that we were in electronic music and clubs and that's you know and various elements of clubs so you know chill out rooms or ambient rooms and homeless and electronica but kind of vocals and guitars was not what we were doing so I suppose it was like new horizons new challenges really musically Obviously, when we're looking back in time, I'm interested to know sort of what the landscape looked like, what what was different from, say, for instance, starting a label today. Before you start talking about internet and worldwide web being connected on that <laughs> level, you know, we were talking about lists, fax machines, lists, and going in and seeing people. You know, you'd have to get off your bum and, and actually get on a tube or a bus and, and, and go and meet people in, in the real world and discuss your business and um, it was um, 
I don't know. It was, it was, I think everything was that, it seemed that little bit harder. Now, looking back, it seems, well, it looks like, you know, it must have been really hard. But it, it kind of, if you were enthusiastic enough, you just did your own work and, and, you, and you rung people and then they give you a number of someone else and uh, uh, he'll know. Ring this fellow up, boom, 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 and you ring him up and say, oh, yeah, he can put you in touch with him. This is that's my mate, blah, 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 blah. And so you could track people down. And I think we were pretty well connected at that point. By the time we, we'd started the label, we worked with enough distributors. We knew who the distributors were, so we knew who worked at which distributor and what they were specialist in, where our label might sit best. Um, so we, we had a good rapport with all of them, so, you know. So so we, we kind of knew distribution-wise how to get how who to speak to to get our records distributed. All these things were you know you could find out, demystify. And we did it. We did it when we when the internet first started going. We did a a little thing on our website where we tried to we had a page on there to the demystification of the, of the music industry right. what you need to do God, to put a record out That'd it must be, nice be archived somewhere it would be nice to see that again we because we, that. We, we, we put it up there because once yeah. we'd done our own work and we figured out how to do it we then created yeah, a public space where forgot about that you know this isn't that hard hey everybody running this record we've been running the record label now for three years it ain't that hard you know you can do it stop sending us all your demos why don't you have a go for the amount of money it costs you to do this, that, and everything else, you could probably do it yourself. If your record's that good, take the risk, do it yourself. Here's how. And we listed all the different ways. You know, here's the studios, here's the mastering engineers. No matter which country you're in, and we invited people, if you're in Germany, tell us who you use for mastering, tell us who you use for distribution, tell us who you use for press and promo. And we created this kind of database, sort of online database, so people could use. Go and use it, you know. But it was really interesting because... I think it came from the way that we were in the shop, which you kind of reflected in your label, that kind of personality of, well, this information is all, is out there, you know, and if you're struggling to get here, how you know, we just made it a little bit easier for you. You can go and do it yourself. It's, it's encouraging that whole DIY approach again, because it's, you know, the, the, I think a lot of people feel that the music industry is impenetrable. You can't find a way in. And, you know, it's really hard to kind of, how do you do it? What is it? It's like this mysterious place where magic happens. And, um, and it isn't really. It, it, there is, it, you know, the, the, the magic happens in the artist. And everything beyond that, there's a, there's a process that you can learn how to do. obviously running a successful label for the for the amount of time that they have obviously takes a certain kind of spirit 
So my next question was to ask them how they've weathered the changes. Um, I just think you have to you have to grow, don't you? Really, you have to kind of grow on every level, really. And um, obviously, the challenges that you're faced in dealing with other people and their ways of doing things that are different to yours and their wants and needs that are different to yours you know dealing with artists dealing with we've been in various business relationships some that haven't ended very well you know and you just have to yeah i just think i think it's been a case of learning and kind of growing up everyone has got access to spotify everyone's got access to apple music if they want to they can get their stuff up there but it's how do people know it's there there's a lot of stuff on apple music and a lot of stuff on spotify and youtube but it's pointing people it's being able to kind of direct people to that um that, that is the difference but and I, and I think that's kind of in, in in a respect the record industry hasn't changed that much in, a, in as much as a record label's job is to shine a light on an artist or, or on album or a single or a, and shine a light on it and and invite people to get involved whether that be live whether it be buying music streaming music downloading it but being connected to that music in some shape or form getting it to a radio getting it played on radio that's kind of the job of the record company and that has always been the job of the record company and it will remain the job of a record company but it's it's the different ways in which you present it and um and the and the hoops you have to jump through to get it into the public domain that that will change and is constantly changing When you're kind of looking at some of the analytics that are available to you now, and and it's it's like you'll see, I think we're looking on one of our SoundCloud um, streams, and and it's got the top cities, and um, and you've got Seoul in in South Korea, and it's like that's number six, and it's above London, and it's like, well, is is that true? Is that is that really did that really happen, or, or is that a misnomer? Is that something you know? Is that whether someone's kept the servers and you're linking to servers? And same with Mexico City. You know, Mexico City is in your top ten um, cities in 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 the world for streaming, and we and we got a fair number of streams. Um, and it's like, is that true? You know, is that are these figures right? And and they are right. And you're now creating, or it's not us that's creating. It's the big corporations are now in countries and uh, territories that we've never had access to as, as an independent record company, and nor has most of the majors, and definitely like, the, the independent world definitely hasn't been in these places. You know, it's been hard to sell records in Mexico, Peru, Argentina, um, you know, Malaysia, and, but these accounts are real, and these companies are in those places, and they're racking up plays, and so what's interesting is we're now in all these new markets that we were never in before the difficult thing is how do you actually turn that into anything tangible and real in terms of running a business how do you target these people and that's the that's the big question now as to what's going on in the industry is is how do you use the analytics that are there to actually create something of any value to those people
10 years ago, you'd have a track to radio, it would last six weeks, it's done and dusted, it's done its playlist, it's finished, move on to your next track. That's not the case anymore, because when you take a track to stream, if it performs well on the lower playlists, it gets pushed up and it accesses the next tier of playlists and that can take a month, a month and a half just to go up one tier on the playlist. If it performs well on the second playlist, it will go up again. And it can take, there's a, there's some, some labels are working on 18 month track cycles. If they think they can get a track away at one of those multiple million playlists, it can take them a year to get the track there or the artist there. So when you're developing new artists, you're trying to bounce them up the playlist in. And um, so, it, so again, this is, this is how these big companies are changing the way that we as record companies operate. It's because they're dictating the rules. You have to go through this procedure to get your track to here. If you care about it, if you want the, the, the cream of the crop up the top there, this is how you do it. You've got to spend a year pushing that track and dealing with us to get your track up there. So it's, uh, it's, that's a nightmare. If you imagine you've got 10, 12, 15 artists that you're trying to work over a period of 18 months, that's, that's a lot of kind of time spent trying to get one or two or three or four tracks through all these hoops on, um, on you know, certain kind of uh, platforms in order to kind of maximize your reach or your benefit to your artists, because your artists We'll be looking at those top playlists and going, why am I not up there? So the title of this podcast is called The Current State. So I asked them, how do they see the current state of music and the industry? And what are their hopes or dreads for the future? What you've seen, yeah, what you've seen, in the, especially in the last three years, is vinyl started to grow. But it will only ever reach uh, a certain level. There, there was a point where it, you know you you are not going to get. It's probably at its maximum now. You know it might grow a little bit more, but it's not. You know you're not in the days of. This isn't going to replace the the CD, <laughs> you know, which was kind of ten years ago. You had the CD kind of just wiping the floor with everybody. Uh, it's not that. It's not going to be like you know when the CD became all in, all powerful. Um, it's there's a there is a there's a an older audience that feel that that want to have something tangible. They're going to spend their money. They want something that has value in their hands. They can feel the weight of that. They can keep forever, put away. They can you know 
interact with the artwork in a way that you can't with a file on your computer. And I think that's, that's what vinyl offers you. In some respects, it's, 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 that's, the, that's the hard work in, in putting releases together now, is, is the physical product is the one that takes the time to put together. And the digital doesn't take that long at all, you know, um, but the physical does, and you've still got those old networks in place where you have to use shipping companies to ship it, <coughs> manufacturers who are based all over Europe um, to manufacture it and ship it back to you. So there's the, 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 the old way of working still exists, <coughs> and um, it's never gone away. It just means you know you're now moving larger quantities of this stuff around than you were three years ago. Um, but I think it's probably reached a plateau where you know there's so much new vinyl in the marketplace now <coughs> that it will probably slide back down again. I hope that there'd be more, um, what's the word, better editorial on streaming sites. You know, like you go to the front of Spotify and I, I still find that, I mean, I use Spotify loads, I use it all the time. And I think the way they direct you in um, to the content, it's still like sort of going into a big shop in some sort of way and trying to find the dusty stuff at the back. You know, I have to get lists and try searching for things. I'm like, oh my God, that track's on Spotify, it's so good. But yet to kind of find it, it takes, obviously you have to look for it. You still have to go through record lists and try things and see if the record's on there and the rest of it. And hopefully making that more user friendly with better editorial and more kind of niche streaming sites. So they kind of go, if you want pop music, this is pop music over here. If you're looking for electronic music, you know, abs you know electronic music and these are the kind of general parameters of electronic music here we go and then within that we can kind of <coughs> drill down into really much better content creation for you and allow some more underground stuff that's sitting on streaming sites to have a voice so I'm surprised that all the people that feel really outraged about it haven't done something about creating a niche streaming service do you know what I mean it's maybe like, we should do it what's your definition of dance again do you understand what I'm saying there is really good tracks on there you know and I I just want a better entryway into it. I want to have someone that's going to be informative with their content. I think there's a lot more they can do with it, you know? I think they can have news pieces of where you can kind of go and stream the artist track and it bring it to the front. And But just, yeah, I, just, I think there's those opportunities for it, you know, better playlists, um, just bringing, bringing stuff that's hidden on there to the front. But there's nothing that's interacting with me to be able to go, no, 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 no. Do not show me that again. I am not interested. And it, you have to do an algorithm that kind of starts looking at what I'm listening to and pulling up stuff that I really like. I mean, obviously, they kind of do it with the Spotify radio in a way. That's That kind of is okay and it sort of works. But... I think what they can do is streaming is just they're just scratching the surface and obviously I didn't realise there needs to be massive amount of investment but there must be money being made somewhere for it. I mean it doesn't stop me buying the records, I buy the records that I love to have in my collection but it's so portable and it's so easy isn't it and create playlists and listen to them and the rest of it so I'm not one to kind of go no let's not do that I just think it needs to be a bit more you know more, more people involved in it, more artists brought to the front.
Um, I was in a meeting the other day and they're talking about how we code all our music so that it can be triggered voice by voice recognition because if you look at what Amazon are doing and everyone else, they're bringing out all this voice activated, play me this, play my playlist, do this, do that. And now the, the big, uh, you know, we're talking about metadata at the back end which identifies your tracks. They're talking about in five to ten years time that will all be everything we use, all, all the kind of kit that we're using to play our music will be voice activated and so all your tracks that are on streaming sites and everything else must have some code that allows people to use it by voice and that's that you know so this 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 is where it's going it's going into voice activated hardware which means that your product that you put out there has to be triggered by you know or recognized by this new hardware you know but underneath i think the core value is still the same that we want to discover new music and champion it to as many people as possible without being have to be sold the mediocrity that they decide to give us you know via the tv or the radio or the playlist or anything else not interested in that stuff i'm interested in new creative unheard talent what's worrying in in the industry and what what the kind of you know there's one thing that, that i think is is slightly worrying is that there used to be a real strong network of independents and it would be independent labels, independent PR companies, independent distributors that all worked together and uh, there was a lot of choice in the market. So if you was an indie label, you had various choices about where you took your product and how you worked. Those choices are becoming less and less and less. As the years go on, companies like us have less choice about who we work with because those independent companies are getting bought up by the majors or the big corporations being rolled in to their system. So you end up with three big players in the distribution world, three big players in the streaming world, three big players, and, and that's gonna be your choices, you know, going forwards. And that's not an industry that I'm that excited about, really, because how do you then find your voice within that big corporation? You know, who's, who's, who's shouting your corner? Who's fighting your corner in, in those areas? And that's the one, part of the industry that does worry me is that the choices that we had even 12 months ago on the distribution front there's probably half this year within within a year and a half you've probably they've probably disappeared half of those have disappeared either they've gone or they've been absorbed into a, a bigger major corporation or network and that is that is the one thing that does slightly worry me and slightly unsettles me is that our choices as a business of who we work with are disappearing and they're disappearing fast and and it's in all facets of the business so the business is becoming smaller on a number of levels Um, even though there's more music than ever being released the actual mechanism to reach your audience is diminishing it's becoming smaller and you're having to play with bigger and bigger and bigger companies in order to get your music out there so that that is the one area that I, I'm slightly worried about. I'm quite excited about all the other stuff, all that kind of, you know, fluidity of your business and, and whether, you know, the way that people access music and absorb music in five, ten years' time. That's quite interesting. <clears throat> That's going to be quite exciting, being on, the, on that ride. But the actual mechanics of the business, <coughs> having your choices culled, is, that's a big worry.
always like to try and garner a few nuggets of inspiration for anyone looking to get into the music industry or looking to become an artist themselves. So here's what they had to say. Just get yourself a good overview of, of what you want to do creatively for, for, a, for a period of time. You know, I think for me, the biggest thing that I've kind of learned is, of course, there's the whole business aspect of it. You know, you need to know what you're doing on a business side. You need to have a lawyer. That's really important. You know, contracts are very important. You need to understand the basics of the business. But having a, having a long-term plan, I think, is the most important. And I was doing mentoring with people at college who wanted to start record labels and artists that wanted to release things. And they were always just looking at one really small moment in time rather than looking at a year's worth of moments in time all pointing to one album or one release or one something, you know. It's kind of... Um, so I, th I think that's... To me, that's the same thing I seem to repeat over and over and over and over and over again to people, that people just release things in isolation and don't realise that it's about communicating a much bigger creative story over a much longer period of time. So I, I think that's the best place to start, really. My advice would just be to, you know, if you're that excited about doing something, then, then you, you will get on and do it anyway. And any advice that you're given goes out the window and, and you only learn by going through the process. <coughs> and so, you know the, those those young lads or lasses that are running or putting out new music now. Not all of them will be will last the course, you know. But there'll be there'll be a handful that that there is nothing else that they want to do, and and they will just plow on, and you will learn as you go along. The the best the best as long as you're prepared to lose everything that you've put in, because you you know it's a. It's that kind of industry. You can lose everything in, in on one act. You know, it's it's very very easy to lose all your money. So be prepared to, you know, understand that. You know, the analogy I always give is like it's like horse racing. <coughs> it's how much money are you prepared to put on that horse? You know, and and and, and are you going to win if it comes second, third, or fourth? Maybe. You know, but you you know you need to know what you're going to risk on that horse and be prepared to lose that. You know, that entire sum because that that can happen. And um, and if that's the if that's the risk you're willing to take, then then it's it, it can be really exciting. Then you need to be prepared to lose every single penny you're about to invest, because that can quite often be the case. <laughs> and we've done it a number of times. And with that, we were done. We all had to run off and go and pick our various responsibilities up from school etc I felt like I had a lot more questions that I could have asked them and I'm sure they would have talked for a lot lot longer but as it is I just want to send a massive thanks to Dave and Alex for being very generous with their time and for being really open thank you thank you that's lovely thank you If you enjoyed this podcast, if you could share it on your social media, tell your friends about it, and uh, leave a leave a review on iTunes, that'd be great. That helps spread the word. And obviously, the more that I do, 
the more diverse range of people will be willing to sign up for it. So those are the guys from Fat Cat Records. And next time, I'm going to be sitting down and chatting with Mark Ray from Ray and Christian. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. I'll see you again soon. Say